Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And I want to share a phrase that was new to me when I heard it this week. Do you know what it means if somebody shows up with their arms swinging? Uh, it means they didn't bring anything to the house. That's they brought it. no food, no drinks, nothing but <laughs> themselves. And probably an empty stomach. <laughs> Exactly. You know, a mother might say to her uh, adult child, don't show up with your arms swinging. And it doesn't mean, you know, don't come prepared for a fight, which is what I thought it would mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're supposed to come with your arms crooked. That's right. Your arms bent. something. Yeah. And there are several phrases like that, like uh, don't be standing there with your two arms at the same length or don't go visiting with one arm as long as the other. And another one that you and I have talked about before, Grant, ring the door with your elbow. There we go. Yep. Yeah. Supposed to have drinks and uh, some couple of side dishes and yep. maybe a watermelon in a cooler on ice, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know you've got those homespun phrases and those little things that you like to say. And sometimes they're so common in your family that you forget that everyone doesn't say them. Well, pluck those out of your day-to-day speech and share them with us. 877-929-9673 is toll-free in the United States and Canada. Or if you're somewhere else in the world, there's some way to reach us. We promise you can go to our website at waywardradio.org slash contact. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, my name is Debbie and I'm from Boulder. And I'm obsessed with uh, K-dramas. It's my guilty pleasure. It's intellectual, of course, because I'm reading subtitles, right? So Uh my husband doesn't understand why I'm not fluent in Korean already. Um, (laughs) uh, Or for that matter, if I don't know any words other than thank you, which is kamsamidan is the only word I know after all the Korean uh, shows I watch. (laughs) Um, Uh (laughs) Kamsamidan. My question is related to, to what I hear on these shows. The, the South Koreans use the word fighting, like F-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, fighting, and they make like a fist, fighting. Um, in mm-hmm. English, when they want to say good luck or go get them. And I'm thinking it stems from the American GIs during the Korean War, but would like to check with my favorite grammar experts. So you're watching Korean dramas, K-dramas. When do they say fighting? What's happening when they say the, uh, what sounds like the English word fighting? Fighting. So it's it's like when they're saying, go get them or good luck. You know, like you're about to try something new and they want to say good luck. So they yeah. say fighting. Yeah, so it's not, it's not the same way that we would say fighting. So they're not using it as a noun or the present participle of the English verb to fight. They're using it kind of as an imperative, like a, as a cheer. Yes, exactly. It's like, go get them, tiger, or do it, or come on, team, or go, 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 go for it. Exactly, right. Right. So it's a bit of Konglish, a mix of Korean and English. That's K-O-N-G-L-I-S-H. And uh, Matt Van Volkenberg of the, the blog Gusts of Popular Feeling has found a couple of early uses of it in Korean from 1972 and in English from 1975. So it has a pretty long history. It doesn't go back as far as we've been able to find to the Korean War, but American GIs have been in Korea since the Korean War. So there's a chance it comes from them, but it could also just come from just the pervasiveness of American media in Korean culture since the war. It doesn't even have to be from the the war itself or from the American GIs being there. So um, I think more than likely it just came from Koreans watching American sports and American television shows, American movies. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and just for everybody who's listening, they don't spell it when it's transliterated in back into to Latin letters. They don't spell it like we spell it. It's often spelled H-W-A-I-T-I-N-G or P-A-I-T-I-N-G, and it's it sounds like three syllables instead of two, so it might be like ho or pi like that. Yes, 
And sometimes it sounds like whiting, like uh, with a W almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, But it's yeah. kind of aspirated at the beginning. Yes. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for calling and sharing that. We appreciate thank it. Thank you Take so care much. Now. Okay. Enjoy your shows. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Call us, 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Elijah in Fayetteville, West Virginia. How's my wordy friends today? <laughs> we're, we're delightful and delighted to have you here. So let me tell you, I'm, uh, I'm here in West Virginia, and I was born and raised in West Virginia. But I often go to a job to do an estimate because I own a small painting company. And people say, so where are you from? And I say, I'm from West Virginia. And they say, mm, I don't think so. I say, I'm pretty sure. Uh, they say, it's because you have no accent. Uh, I use some of the nomenclature, but not really. I mean, y'all is just kind of convenient, but I don't say it like y'all, you know? Uh, and so I am looking for a word that means I am from here, but I don't sound like I am. Hmm. All right. I want to explore this a little bit. First, what part of the state is Fayetteville in? Fayetteville is about an hour south of Charleston. It's actually in the New River Gorge National Park. All right. So just on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains. In the Appalachian Mountains, yeah. In the Appalachian Mountains. Okay, so that's important, yeah. I think. And so you say that you don't have an accent, and we're going to put an asterisk on that and get to that in a minute. But did you spend a lot of time away when you were growing up? No, no. I, uh, I just grew up about two and a half hours north near the uh, northern panhandle of West Virginia in a town that is full of accents. Uh, but, small but that's town, next so. to Pennsylvania, isn't it? In Ohio? Uh, it's right next to Ohio, yes. And did you act in theater productions? No, no. Okay. I was homeschooled all 12 years, but I still interacted with the community a lot and had okay. friends that didn't talk the way I did. And so mm. I'm from here. I just don't sound like it. What do you think happened? Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you that, but I think you've already given us the answer. I think the two things are that you lived in the panhandle and you were homeschooled. And so we tend to speak like our peers more than we speak like our parents. And schooling is one of the ways that we pick up the local dialect more than just about anything else in this country. And it may be the reason that you you don't sound like your peers. Also, your education would be different than theirs. So you may have had a different kind of, maybe perhaps even more book-oriented uh, English classes than your classmates or the, your 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 age age appropriate group but that panhandle thing uh, is going to put you largely in uh, a different isolect as it's called than most of the rest of the state of west virginia but that's still not my question my question is is there a word <laughs> that says i'm from here but i don't sound like it stranger outsider <laughs> somebody from the way <laughs> oh okay okay Maybe that's what I'll say. Well, there's a there's a passage in the book Talking Appalachian Voice, Identity, and Community by Amy D. Clark. It's a very good book. And she writes in the in the preface about growing up in the heart of Appalachian near eastern Kentucky, western North Carolina, and southern West Virginia. And she says that while she grew up surrounded by the Appalachian Englishes, and she uses the plural there. She says she was never introduced to Appalachian literature in her high school English classes. And she says she did not identify as Appalachian and she did not understand that she spoke a regional dialect. But she understood that the rules of standard American English and she knew about code switching, that she needed to adjust her speech to sound more like your average American versus sounding more like a local and she could turn off that local dialect when she wanted to. But she also says she was always at the risk of teasing from friends and family who believed that standard American English was for people who thought they were too good to be associated with, with their neck of the woods. And so the question I have for you, do you encounter this kind of rejection or even subtle bias from people because you don't sound like you're from there? No, more of what I run into is I hear people say, you enunciate really well. Uh, I just run into that a lot, which I think is part of what uh, caused people to say, you don't sound like you're from around here. You're too clear. Do you feel like your homeschooling perhaps was more rigorous than what 
other people went through in the public schools? In my area, yeah. Yeah. My homeschooling grade was a grade or two ahead of the public school that I was in, or that was around. Yeah, and I'm wondering what the folks who homeschooled you sounded like. Were they West Virginians as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was my mother. Uh, mm-hmm. And other home, other homeschoolers around me, they like they sound like they're from the area. I just don't sound like I'm from the area. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. It might be that your mother was very good at it, and she you had one-on-one attention, which is hard to get in a public school. And which having that kind sense. of direct attention when you're doing pronunciation exercises and English oral uh, reading and speaking exercises, that can make a lot of difference. But you're seeking a word for this, and I, I don't know that we're going to have one for you. Okay, okay, that's fine. I'll just continue to say, I am from here, but I don't sound like it. Would you like the job? <laughs> I wanted to address the point that regional accents and regional dialects do change, but you actually do have an accent. I hear it. And any linguist who listens to you for more than 30 seconds will hear it. And it's not necessarily in the words that you use. It's in the vowels. And West Virginia is particularly known uh, for more than 200 years. West Virginia and its dialect features have been known and studied. It was interesting that you brought up you all because West Virginia is also has traditionally been a Yuns second person plural state. Hmm. I don't Do you think don't hear people say Yuns there? No, Yuns? I've never. Now, when you talk about vowels, I think about Warsh. I hear people talking about, you know, Warshan things. That's yeah. not what I say. It's wash, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, most of that, most of what happens in uh, what uh, that st- makes West Virginia stand out is in its in its vowels. Vowels. So, okay. A great resource is the West Virginia Dialect Project at West Virginia University in Morgantown, led by linguist Kirk Hazen. You can find that at dialects.wvu.edu. That's dialects.wvu.edu. Okay. Well, guys, I appreciate your time. We didn't find a word, but I had a fun time. So thank well, you for talking Well, it's possible. With me. We have a lot of creative listeners that they'll all come up with a word for you, and we'll share that out. A word for somebody who doesn't sound like they're from where they're actually from. Exactly. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Good talking with you, Elijah. Okay. Bye-bye. Let's talk about language. Call us 877-929-9673. If you want to say you're annoying me, in German, there's a wonderful little idiom that goes, Du geht's mir auf den Cakes, which means literally, you're walking on my cookie. Oh, yeah, that's super annoying. <laughs> you're walking that, on but, my But, you know, cookie. Martha, the response is, that's the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll have to figure out how to say that one. <laughs> Call us to talk about language, 877-929-9673. More about language and how we use it as Away With Words continues. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's G-U-M dot F-M slash W-O-R-D-S. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Bear, and here he is, blowing the doors off the joint. It's our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Hey, Grant. Hey, Martha. I'm sorry about the doors, by the way. I'll, I'll, I promise I'll <laughs> fix those. I recently saw a movie that took place in an alternate universe. And that's one where mm. one or two things have changed, resulting in a world similar to ours, but with just a few differences. And, and, and that, that got me thinking about that one day years ago when I learned there was a radio show about language looking for a puzzle guy. And I wondered, where would I be now if... Instead of joining the wonderful folks at Away With Words, I'd answered a phone message from, say, the Audubon Society and lit upon a radio show (laughs) creating quizzes about nuthatches and northern flickers and ospreys. In that alternate universe, I could have ended up on a show called... Away with Away turns. Away with birds. Away with birds is good. Away with turns, a little more a little more focus. But yeah, I like it. Away with birds we'll go with. Okay. 
So I'll posit a life-changing event in which my timeline skews off into another universe. You just have to tell me, away with what? Here we go. All right. All right. Mm. It's 20 years ago, and I'm contacted by the U.S. Department of the Interior. They want to produce a show about how they care and maintain the many buffalo and bison roaming America's <laughs> national parks. What show is that? Away with herds. Away with herds. Yes, perfect. That's it. I might even <laughs> listen to that show. Now, I'd have to cross the pond and live in London if I were recruited by the Upper House of Parliament for a show about the wackiness that they get up to. What would that be? Away with lurds. Oh, he with lurds. No, sometimes, the, sometimes the, 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 orthographically it's similar and this pronunciation is different. But in this case, it is... Away with lords. Away with lords, yes. Sometimes, yeah. I like this pronunciation. Away yeah. with the sometimes lords. I just, sometimes I just change one letter and it just makes something different. Uh, Jerry of Jerry's Bait and Tackle Shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, they decided he, he could fill an hour discussing night crawlers and red wigglers, but he needs a puzzle guy. And that's how I ended up on what show? Away with worms. Away with worms, yes. Again, almost all of these I would probably listen to. You guys know uh, George R.R. R. Martin, uh, the Game of Thrones sure. guy? He and I uh, both grew up in New Jersey. And who knows, uh, if our paths had crossed, we might have worked together on a show about medieval weaponry. What would that have been? Away with swords. Away with swords, indeed. Mm. Say halberds. <laughs> there Away we go. That's halberds. Good. <laughs> I like that, too. Now, finally, this one, this one is somewhat different from the others. This one's a very different universe. Instead of a descriptive show that illustrates the many different variations in how language is used, what if this were a prescriptive show that definitively stated rules for using English? Instead of away with words, we would be on... The way with words. The way with words, <laughs> yes. Some sort of terrible, horrible timeline where you guys tell people exactly how they're supposed to talk. We would never do that, of course. Instead, I like, I like the timeline that we're in. Just one of the ways with words. Just one the of way the, way, the ways with words, yes. A possible <laughs> way with words. Anyway, you guys were fantastic. Good job, Away With Words. Oh, Good man, job. John, that was great fun. Thank you so much. Thanks. And we know you have Away With Words, and we'd love to talk with you about it. So call us, 877-929-9673, or send your thoughts about language to words at waywardradio.org. Hi, you have Away With Words. Hi, this is Lisa Rose Riley. I live in Columbia, South Carolina. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Hi, Lisa. What's up? Thank you so much. Hi. Um, I'm originally from Brockport, New York. Um, it is a small college town in western New York, right on the Erie Canal. And there is a word that we use when we were in high school to describe a very specific kind of student, classmate. And the word is not something that anybody else apparently even from outside of our town, knows, um, and definitely not in the South. I came down in 1992 to go to the University of South Carolina, um, and nobody knew the word. And the word is beeg. Um, I'm not sure about the spelling. I think it's B-E-E-G or maybe even B-E-A-G. And so we call these students beeg or beegers. And it described a student that kind of, I guess the best way to describe it would be like, if you went back to you know the 50s times, it'd be kind of like a greaser. So they were the kids that listened to like Iron Maiden and had mullets and um, you know smoked cigarettes and things like that. So um, nobody else knows the word. And it's funny. There's a Facebook group um, called Remembering Brockport, which is really nice. There's a you know people that live in the town, people that have lived there their whole lives, and alumni um, of the high school. Um, I went onto this Facebook group and posted the question about if anybody knows the origin of the word. Um, and I just just looked at it a minute ago, and it had gotten 185 responses. Um, there's also another post previously about the word, and there are some theories. So, of course, I thought you guys might have some. At least you guys might be my best option to find an answer if there is one. Oh, Lisa, this is wonderful. I, uh, Martha and I are big fans of high school clique names because they tend to be, mm -hmm. they do tend to be so specific or, or regional at least, uh, and they often mm -hmm. take on the flavor and the tone of the community that they belong to. Yes. But big. I, big. I never heard that one. I, Mar I'm looking at these <laughs> Facebook 
post that you're talking about here, the Remembering <laughs> Rockport, uh, and I see these, and there's a lot here, but I'm looking particularly at the one by Michael Farrell, or Farrell, F-A-R-R-E-L-L, and he's talking about this fellow William Bird or Bill Bird who keeps coming up. Yep. And this is the theory that I think that makes the most sense, that it was derived <laughs> from Beagle because people who used, tended to bum cigarettes kind mm-hmm. of begged like a beagle. So it's a short okay. of the word beagle. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I did see his name come up. Yep. William Bird. Um, but he keeps coming up again and again and again, although it does look like there is some, some an alternative theory that it had something to do with people who were kind of boring and beige. So it's an intentional mispronunciation mm. of beige. <laughs> I, I did see that one come up a couple of times. And it says, I think that one was started by a few teachers that had said um, a student had, was trying to describe um, that they would come into school if they had, you know, done a little too much drinking or, you know, some other things they shouldn't do and came into class and a student described them as looking beige but mispronounced the word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, so that's they're, one, they're pale because they're like, they're, like, sick or hungover, yeah. right? Yes, exactly, and that's what I saw, you know. There's so many of these terms. Mm-hmm. I, I remember once, a long time ago, we took a call where there was somebody where it sounds like a very similar type of person. They called them Hessians. Am I remembering this correctly, Martha? Yeah, Hessians and Heshers. Yeah, Hessians and Heshers. Yeah, huh. and I think that actually was more widely used than one school. Um, and of course, a yeah. lot of people just use metalheads or um, gearheads or yeah. just whatever like the yeah. particular kind of group was. It's just so funny because it definitely is so specific that anybody you know who graduated around the time I did, you know, obviously there seems to be about a fifteen year span or so um just knows that word and then when they've used it and you know nobody else knows what they're talking about but i just love the fact that you know it's unique obviously it seems to our high school and it's just it, it brought up a lot of conversation <laughs> which i love <laughs> fun yeah and you just broadcast big to to the entire world you never know man it's Maybe gone way beyond your up. high school now <laughs> at least they're here yeah, it, it is now now <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for sharing your memories with us, Lisa. And I'm sure this is going to start a great conversation with everyone else's local terms for their particular cliques and groups. Thank you so much for having me on. Our pleasure. Rock on. Take care. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Take care. You too. Well, Martha and I do want to hear about your high school cliques or your college cliques and what you call them. What was the name for all those special groups, the, the kids who listened to this music or played that sport or went to this particular class or... Uh, played in band or did theater or belonged to that club or were from this neighborhood or um, were on the outside or were on the inside. But we love all that stuff. We're really interested. And we also want to hear your high school slang. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. I came across some excellent advice the other day. Don't let your alligator mouth overload your hummingbird butt. In other words, don't write a check with your mouth that your butt can't cash. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, yes. Yes. Another version of that is don't let your alligator mouth overload your mosquito butt. And as you can imagine, there are lots of other uh, colorful variants of that. Oh, yes. Uh, Very colorful words for your derriere. (laughs) That's right. And, of course, alligator mouth refers to the mouth of somebody who is boastful. Right. Yeah, braggart. (laughs) But I like that. Don't let your alligator mouth overload your mosquito butt. Good advice for the ages. 877-929-9673. Hey there. You have a way with words. Hi. I have a way with words. My name is Max, and I work on an ambulance. I'm from uh, Dallas, Texas. Max, we're glad to have you. Hi, Max. Uh, so you are you're an EMT? Thank you. I, I'm a paramedic, and uh, my word that I wanted to bring up is some medical slang that we use. <clears throat> it's a verb we say uh, snowed, and it's when a patient reaches a high level of drug intoxication to where their level of consciousness is altered to the point where they're usually uh, only aware of themselves. They're snowed. Okay, yeah, that's exactly. interesting. How, so you've known this as long as you've been in the the field in the profession. Yes, mm-hmm. I don't know where it comes from, but there's a couple ideas behind that one. Uh, one is that it just might be related to the idea that the patient now has 
blizzard-like perceptions. <laughs> they're snowed. <laughs> it's like all their senses are dulled to nothing as if they're in a, a whiteout from a, a blizzard. Um, but there's another possible origin, and this involves a, a legendary figure in the world of anesthesiology. Have you ever heard oh, of really? the British doctor John Snow? John, no, I haven't. I've never heard and, John Snow. And not the Game of Thrones character, <laughs> although maybe he's <laughs> named after him. I don't know. So we're talking 1800s. He spent a lot of time researching anesthetics and anesthesiology, um, especially after the death of a 15-year-old girl who had been given too much chloroform for a surgical resection of a toenail, basically a minor surgery. And the way they mm. administered the chloroform is they just put a bunch of it on a cloth and held it up to her mouth. There was no measurement. Mm. There was no machinery for it. They just kind of just like plopped it onto her face, and she died from it. Mm. And so he spent some time uh, looking into what other people were doing and developed machinery for administering measured doses of chloroform so that it could be used during surgery and because so it could be safely used so you could estimate based upon just like we do you know the weight and the amount of chloroform so that you could reduce the risk of of death or other trauma from the anesthetic and he also was known for administering chloroform to queen victoria for the birth of two of her children and this was in contradiction to the medical profession at the time and the religious establishment um, who all said that this should not be done uh, for the safety and the just kind of the religious belief uh, um, that the mother and child should not go through this. But Queen Victoria insisted and he went through with it. And because of that, it became standard to allow anesthetic to be administered to, to birthing mothers. Uh, so he's responsible. But the more important thing that he's known for is he developed a theory about the transmission of cholera. He determined that it was spread by contaminated oh. drinking water and not by foul air, which had been the, the the hypothesis up to the time. So anyway, the idea of being snowed, being, uh, you know, kind of completely under, almost completely under an anesthetic so that you're oblivious to the world may come from do British Dr. John Snow. I didn't know that. I... I can see the blizzard part, but that makes more sense because it's that fine line. You want to know the patient so they don't they're in a good spot, but you don't want to give them so much you kill them accidentally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Max, we hope you you'll call us again sometime and share some more medical jargon. We really dig that stuff. Hey, thank you, and I'll spread the word. So, John Snow. Yeah, John right. Snow. Look him up. He's fascinating. Just Google John Snow an anesthesiology, and you'll find fascinating biographies of this man. Well, uh, you guys keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Take care. You Be too. safe out there. You too. And thank you for your good work. There are lots of ways to contact us. Go to waywardradio.org slash contact. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. This is Susan from Charlotte. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. I have a phrase that I'm curious about. Um, it's a it's a phrase that my mother used when I came home um, a little unexpectedly late one night as a teenager. She greeted me at the door and she said, "I have been on my ear all night," <laughs> and I I knew what that meant because of her tone of voice in the situation. But <laughs> I don't know where that phrase comes from. And I even used it in a short story once uh, describing a similar situation. No one in my writer's group had a clue what I meant. Um, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that folks in your writer's group didn't know that expression because it's been around for quite a while. Uh, to be up on your ear means to be angry or agitated or embarrassed. Or you might say to somebody if, if they're upset with you, uh, uh, now don't get up on your ear. Uh, you know, don't don't be angry or indignant. And um, versions of this have been around since at least the 1860s in this country uh, to spin around on your ear ear means to get violently angry or to go off on your ear means to go away angry or to slide out on your ear means to leave a place angry. Or you can tell uh, somebody to go to hell by saying, walk off on your ear. 
And you'll appreciate this, Susie. We even have letters that uh, a young Harry Truman wrote to his future wife, Bess, in 1913, and in one of those, he uses the expression describing how he failed to show up one day for his dad. His dad was waiting on him and was not happy that Harry was keeping him waiting. And he wrote to Bess, Mama says he was on his ear in proper fashion when I wasn't there to meet him. Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess you're wondering why ear, because it's it's a weird expression, right? A very weird expression. And and I'm wondering, because we're from the South, does it have anything to do with the South, or is it from elsewhere? I don't think it's particularly limited to the South, and, and we're not entirely sure uh, why that expression arose. I mean, to my mind, if you're on your ear, then something's very wrong. You're not standing upright, or, you know, your nose is out of joint. <laughs> your body parts aren't where they're supposed to be. Um, but there's another line of thinking that maybe because early, early expressions um, had to do with walking off on one's ear or waltzing off on one's ear, that it, it might have to do with uh, having an attitude of anger or smugness and you sort of, you know, cock your head to one side. So we really don't know uh, the origin of it. It is an Americanism oh, though, right? It's uh, right. Not, not, it was never used in the UK. Not, yeah, not that we not, know of. Not in this way. There are other expressions that have to do with being on one's ear, but they don't mean this mm-hmm. and they're not used in this way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very enlightening. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're glad to help. Thank you so much, Susan. We appreciate your time. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the information. Y'all have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let us know what's on your mind. 877-929-9673 is a toll-free number, 24 hours a day, in the United States and Canada. And you can also call us on WhatsApp from anywhere in the world. Find that number on our website at waywardradio.org slash contact. Here's a very handy word that was used in the 16th and 17th centuries, but seems to have died out. It's pepper-nosed. And pepper-nosed means to be touchy or easily angered, quick to take offense, uh, even if uh, something isn't offensive. Oh, okay. Uh, pepper-nosed with the idea being that but you're irritated? Yeah, yeah. If you take pepper in the nose, you're, you get irritated. Or if you have pepper in the nose, you behave superciliously or contemptuously. Right. Instead of sniffing snuff, you sniff some pepper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I really like that for, you know, to describe somebody who's pepper nose, who's just ready to take offense at anything you say, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. I think we all have a few of those in our life. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) 877-929-9673. That's toll free in the United States and Canada. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine away with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash ad-free. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. When it comes to talking about siblings, speakers of English choose from one of two terms. You say either brother or sister. But as it turns out, most languages have even more specific terms for referring to siblings. In Japanese, for example, there's a different word to specify each of four types of siblings. There's a single word for older brother, a different one for younger brother, a word for older sister, and another one for younger sister. And there's a new database that lets you explore the global diversity of family terms. It was compiled by an international team led by anthropologist Sam Passmore, who's at the Australian National University. 
And this database is freely available online, and it's providing researchers with a lot of new insights into kinship terms around the world. For example, you may have heard that most languages have a word for mother that starts with M, like mama. And people have guessed for a long time that this is related to a baby's babbling or that kind of mmm sound that babies make while they're breastfeeding. But when researchers looked at terms for parents in more than 1,200 languages, most of those from New Guinea or Australia, they found that more than 40% of the parental words starting with an initial M referred not to the mother, but to the father. And so that upends assumptions that we've had about that initial M sound being near universal when it comes to words for mothers. And you know, Grant, the 1,200 or so languages that are represented in that database constitute just 15% or so of the world's languages. So the project has plenty of room to grow, but it's off to a very cool start. It's a fantastic start. I'm particularly interested in what it has to say about the Polynesian languages. I already know, for example, that they're related, that they have a shared history. You can see this in some of the words that they have in common. And of course, the kinship terms are in common. And I'm also interested in what they have to say about the way those terms are spread now. There is the term USO, that's U-S-O, which comes into English from Samoan. Um, And in Samoan, it is used to refer to your same gender sibling or cousin. For example, I would call my brother or my male cousin Uso, but not my sister or my female cousin. And you can also use it to mean your non-literal sister or brother, just as in English or Spanish, you might call your sister or brother um, or cuz or hermana or mano prima primo if you feel a great friendship towards them but don't have actual kinship. But again, it's only between people of the same gender. And in the United States, uso shows up in English wherever Samoans have settled, such as in California. And so you'll see it um, even in Oceanside here in, in San Diego County. And it's even had a semantic shift to mean a person of Samoan descent. So you might say, uh, all the Usos love to eat at that restaurant, meaning Samoans love hmm. to eat at that restaurant. Hmm. And it's shortened to us to rhyme with moose or goose. And not just in the United States, but in Australia and New Zealand as well. Uh, there was a hit show, a comedy drama called Bump, uh, starting, I think it's still airing in Australia. It started in 2021. Uh, where there's a character of uh, the actor is of Samoan heritage, and he has brought some of that language into to the show, and it's kind of spread from there. And it also shows up in New Zealand in in prison slang. You might be 100% uso, which means you're totally loyal or supportive. Um, and so it's just really interesting to see these kinship terms exist in a language. They have this long shared heritage of, of, of millennia with these other Polynesian languages, but also have a new history spreading into other languages in the modern day. Well, that database is called KinBank, and we will link to it on our website, as well as to the journal article that the researchers wrote about it. You can find that at waywardradio.org, and you can always call us 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hey, Grant. Hey, Martha. This is Will calling from Boston. What's on your mind? So I'm calling about a phrase. Uh, Funnily enough is the phrase. Uh, It's one that I say pretty regularly and always feel somewhat kind of strange after I say it. Like, is that that a real word, funnily? Did I say it right? You know, it just feels strange. Um, And I was listening to a podcast probably a couple weeks ago and uh, just a different podcast and the host said the phrase funnily enough and I was like oh like actual other people use this phrase I knew it was common but I wonder if other people feel the same way about it the way it sounds as I do and yeah I'd love to know how it became a phrase and why it sounds funny especially compared to something like happily which is like the same grammatical form of the word but it doesn't that doesn't sound strange but funnily just sounds so strange so anyways (laughs) I'd love to hear what you guys had to say about it. It's perfectly legitimate. Um, Let me ask you this, Will. Would you feel weird if you said strangely enough or oddly enough or curiously enough? No, I don't think so. I've been thinking about this for a while because I didn't hear someone say strangely enough. And I was like, oh, well, that's the same meaning or oddly enough. And yeah, it just doesn't sound the same. But why? Like, why does it feel weird? You know, 
Yeah, well, part of the reason is that uh, if you add an L-Y to, to form an adverb that's derived from an adjective that ends in Y, it is going to feel weird. I mean, take the word silly, you know, that becomes sillily or jollily, you know, jollily enough or uglily or friendlily. But you know what? Those words have been used since the 1500s. They're not necessarily um, used very much, but um, you'll still find some of those in dictionaries today. Uh, friendlily, for example. But it sounds weird, and it's because right. of that final Y. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think the N's in funnily enough. Yeah, and sticking that L in there... Um, it it does feel weird. I agree with you, although I heard myself say it last week. So, <laughs> you know, another reason that I think it might feel a bit uncomfortable is because traditionally people have insisted that fun is a noun and not an adjective. And in fact, somebody who, who listened to me uh, took it upon themselves to write in and criticize me for saying that something was fun or it was I, was, I think I was talking about a fun word or something. And mm-hmm. they wrote in and said, fun is a noun. You know, you can't use it as an adjective. And which, if which you is look, incorrect, just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at uh, reference works, they'll, they'll tell you that increasingly fun is used as an adjective and even the comparative and superlative forms, funner and funnest. I know that sets some people's Ooh. Teeth on edge, but that, that, that that's is a little cringy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little cringy. Well, that is the trend, and those are still regarded as less formal uh, and more casual. But uh, yeah, funnily enough, they're becoming more common. So, um, so you can use funnily enough in good health, and and think of us every time you do. I definitely will, uh, for sure. Thank you so much for your call, Will. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Take care now. Martha and I would be groovily delighted if you would reach out to us from our website at waywardradio.org contact. There are phone numbers for Mexico, the United States, and Canada, and you can reach out to us from anywhere in the world via text message or WhatsApp. Emiliano Somoza Jr. is from Miami, Florida, and he shared with us some kangaroo words. Now, kangaroo words are words that contain all of the letters of one of their synonyms, and they're arranged in the same order in both words. So, for example, the word regulate, if you look at that word regulate, it has inside it the word rule. So you can regulate somebody or you can rule over that person. And another example is the word masculine. Any guesses about what's inside that one that's well, a synonym? Male is in there. Male, yeah, M-A-L-E. Mm-hmm. And uh, blossom has the word bloom in it. But he sent a couple that were um, surprising to me. I, I don't know. For some reason, I had a hard time with it. One of them is precipitation. Oh, I need a pen and paper, which I do not have in front of me. Um <laughs> Rain isn't in there. Um, yes. It yes. is? There's an <laughs> end is. in there? Oh, yeah, there is at the end. <laughs> Doy. <laughs> kangaroo words, they're a lot of fun. But we have to say why they're called kangaroo words, because the little kangaroo is in the pocket of the big kangaroo. You're absolutely right. And those are called joeys. And sometimes people actually call these words joey words. Well, if you come up with some kangaroo words, share them with us. The email address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, uh, hi, I'm Anastasia, and I'm calling from Marquette, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Anastasia. What can we do for you? So I've recently been reading a lot of um, Russian fiction literature um, from the you know late te- 19th century, early 20th century, and mm-hmm. I noticed when I've been reading, um, they introduce characters, obviously, throughout the book. And then suddenly, um, they'll be called something else. <laughs> um, or, you know, family members will uh, seemingly go by different names. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, my question is, can you maybe shine some light on the Russian naming culture and structure. So when I'm <laughs> reading, I can I can kind of follow along. Mm-hmm. Can okay. you give us an example? 
Yeah, what are you reading? Yeah. What, what are some of the names? So in the book, Dr. Shivago, mm-hmm. um, you know, they introduce one of the um, main characters. Um, his full name is Viktor Ipolovich Komorowski. Um, and, you know, sometimes in the book, he'll be, he'll be introduced just as Komorowski. And then other times, um, they'll, they'll go, he'll go by Victor Ipolovich. Um, and, you know, in Crime and Punishment is another one where I noticed, um, the main character there, Rodian, um, Romanovich Raskolnikov. I think I'm saying it right. Um, you know, sometimes he'll go by just his last name, um, and then his sister will, uh, you know, be called something else. So I'm just wondering if you know, you know, anything about their naming culture or mm-hmm. maybe why why it's structured like that. Yeah, it's it's different. It can be confusing. The Russian names are a delicious mystery, frankly. <laughs> um, okay, this is complicated, so let me see if I can get this right. Uh, first, the surname is different for men and women. So a husband and a wife will have a different last name. For example, let's use Fyodor Dostoevsky. He had two wives, Maria and Anna. His first wife was Maria Dmitrievna Dostoevskaya, not Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. She, her last name was different, even though she was married to him. Right. <laughs> and his second wife was Anna Grigorievna Dostoevskaya. So he also had the same last name. So the two wives had the same last name, but they didn't share the exact same last name as their husband. Because sure, so. the, the women take a feminine suffix, either an A or a Skaya, depending on what the, the husband's name ends with. So that's why it ends with their name. The Dostoevsky becomes Dostoevskaya. The other thing that happens is around the age of 16, children are given what's known as a patronymic, which is based upon their the mother or father's name, usually the father's name. And so this patronymic is incredibly important and often becomes far more important than their surname, that is their family name. And so this is, this is a combination of the father's name plus, if they're a man, Ovich or Evich. And if they're a woman, the father's name plus Ovna or Evna, depending, again, depending on the ending. Sometimes the Ovich or Evich is just itch. So um, we know from Maria Dmitrievna Dostovskaya that her father's name was Dmitri because her middle name mm. is Dmitrievna. So it's Dmitri plus the suffix Evna. Her patronymic is Dmitrievna. So her familiar people who knew her well might just call her Maria Dmitrievna and rarely use her last name except in very formal situations. And the other wife of Fyodor Dostoevsky, we know her father was Grigory. Because her middle name, her patronymic, is Grigorievna. Grigory with the the suffix Evna. Is this all making sense? Mm. Yeah, you know, that actually shines a lot of light. Because I noticed that in the different situations, um, depending on their familiarity with uh, the character um, or situation, they would use those, it seemed like, the more formal names versus the more intimate names. So that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the patronymic is really powerfully important. It's, it's just a level of familiarity. It's about um, the relationship between two people. And so if you use somebody's last name, like their surname, that suggests sure. a distance between you and that person. You know, like a, either a, like a political distance or a business distance or a social distance. And it, and it says something about who you are not. You know, there's a really funny thing that can happen, though. For example, if the same first name is given to a father and that then to his son and then that son has a daughter. Now, that daughter is the now the granddaughter of that first Mm -hmm. father, that first person. Then you can end up with with names like Georgie Georgievich Georgovna. Or to Danya Donovich Donovna. <laughs> yes, I have seen that. Yeah, okay. And those are fun. I think that's really fun names. And then, yeah. to complicate it all, you have nicknames. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. like in English where John can become Jack, and they don't seem really related, but Jack is indeed a nickname for John. 
in Russian, nicknames can seem very different than the, the name that they're based on. So yeah. um, Slava is a nickname for Vasislav, and Vanushna, Vanusha is a nickname for Ivan, and Lyosha is oh. a nickname for Alexei, even though Lyosha doesn't sound anything like Alexei. Not even close. It really does seem like that when you're reading through, because they don't give the context, obviously, because the Russian, um, you know, author is is very familiar, obviously, with their language. So it seems like that character will all of a sudden pop up. And me as, you know, an English speaker, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, hey, where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, so it's really, uh, I mean, it's uh, just delightful to get into. I mean, naming systems in yeah. general are really fun when you get to explore wherever you are in the world because there's so much culture and history wrapped up into them and you learn so much more about a, a people and a place and stuff. But, I mean, it can be frustrating when you're reading and you don't you don't have that background. Right. Yeah, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. I kind of gleaned that their naming system really does um, give a light to the status symbol of the character or the person itself. So thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, well, thanks sure. for raising the question. I think that's mm-hmm. going to help a lot of people. Yeah, and there, yeah. there are a bunch of places online. You know what's a surprisingly good place to learn about naming is in some of the Dungeons and Dragons books <laughs> because oh there's gosh. so much of D&D culture, which is about naming your character. And so they explore a lot of different of the naming systems around the world. And they do a pretty good job of explaining it in simple terms so that if you're naming your characters or, heck, a whole village, you can use some stuff borrowed from real-life naming cultures in, in the real world. Well, I would have never thought to look there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, Anastasia, we'll let you get back to your reading. It sounds like you have a yep. ways to go. Oh, I have a lot. Yeah, And then you I have do. to start at the beginning when you finish. <laughs> You're right. Yes, now yes. that you know all this stuff. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, guys. Take, Take care. care. Well, you can call Grant Leovich and Martha Henleovna at 877-929-9673. Our team includes senior producer Stephanie Levine, engineer and editor Tim Felton, and quiz guide John Chinesky. We'd love to hear from you no matter where you are in the world. Go to waywardradio.org contact. Subscribe to the podcast, hear hundreds of past episodes, and get the newsletter at waywardradio.org. Whenever you have a language story or question, our toll-free line is open in the U.S. and Canada. 1-877-929-9673. Or send your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. Special thanks to Michael Breslauer, Josh Eccles, Claire Grotting, Bruce Rogo, Rick Seidenworm, and Betty Willis. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.